Hi, Mary McCallaghan here. Just to tell you that coming up on the Mario Rosenstock podcast, we're going to be joined exclusively by Roz Purcell. Roz, what are you going to be talking about? I'm, I'm really happy to be here, Mary. I'm going to be talking about veganism, uh, vegetarianism, my quinoa protein balls, and I'm going to tell you about how I broke my leg. Okay, and great. We're going to be joined by Pippa O'Connor as well. Pippa. I'm so excited for the Pippa pop-ups to start. We're going to get our pink peppercorn candles going and our Poco jeans as well. And still living off her Love Island fame, Maura Higgins is going to be joining me as well. I don't really appreciate that, Miriam. Anyway, I'm a Boohoo ambassador and I have loads of other things going on, so I'll tell you all about that. Mary Lou MacDonald will also be here giving out about Leah Varadkar. Uh, excuse me, if I, Miriam, do you mind? It's not giving out, it's just stating the obvious and making valid points. That's the Mario Rosenstock podcast (laughs) on all good podcast platforms. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) And if you haven't already had a chance to listen to my recent interview with broadcaster, podcaster and comedian Duran Garrahy, well, you've been missing out. We laughed the entire way through our conversation. She had me in stitches with her fantastic impressions of people like Maura Higgins from Love Island, Ros Purcell and Mary Lou MacDonald, who she's brilliant at. And she's a great storyteller too, is Dern. So make sure to swipe down a few episodes on the series and click uh, play on that one. But of course, only after you've listened to this episode all the way through, because as ever, we have brand new and exclusive comedy for you as well. And also a brilliant chat with Tom Dunn, the frontman of hit band Something Happens, who's carved out a hugely successful career for himself in radio and journalism um, over the years, whether it be in Today FM um, or now News Talk later at night. Um, Something Happens, of course, was a hugely successful band in its heyday with successful singles in the charts constantly, like Parachute and Hello, Hello, Hello. Um, but there came a point, as there does with many great bands, where choices had to be made and where they decided for various reasons to stop recording albums and touring the world. In our conversation, Tom tells me about the great times they had on the road, touring with some music industry legends and greats. He reveals the reason that they decided to hang up the boots and call it quits as a band. He gives me his thoughts on why some bands become really successful, while others just don't. And he talks about his life in broadcasting and journalism in more recent years. And loads, loads more. I was wearing a Ryan Giggs t-shirt, and he would introduce me (laughs) each night as Ryan Giggs. (laughs) On backing vocals are very talented Ryan Giggs (laughs) And then mistakes start to become cumulative You find yourself in a studio to produce it You're not mad about with songs you don't think are that good And the wheels are coming off Mm. Yeah and that's how it happens In fact now Tom You have the bionic heart That is just sick and amazing Tom You have the edge on me now a pig's heart, a pig's Mickey, which I believe you also are. I've been in a position where I can actually turn to Joe Strummer and say, "Joe, what happened to Clash?" <laughs> <laughs> no, that's the that's the wa- that's the waiter in the casino in Las Vegas going, "George, where did it all go wrong?" To George Best. Lots more from Tom coming up in just a few minutes, right here on the Mario Rosenstock podcast, a podcast that I'm delighted to say as usual, is supported by our good friends in Curry's PC World. Their support, along with your support, um, when you follow or subscribe, rate and review, and please do, means that we can bring you great interviews and exclusive comedy for free every week, and we greatly appreciate it. 
And if you're a regular listener to the podcast, um, the Mario Rosenstock podcast, you'll have heard me and some various characters talk about the great TVs and kitchen appliances that you can find in Curry's PC World. And did you know um, that you can also find a great range of laptops there too? And laptops, of course, are very important right now because at this time of year, laptops are a very precious commodity as parents get their school and college going kids all kitted out for the new academic year. I know I am. But for some well-known parents, the pressure is well and truly on. Hello, good evening and welcome to Primetime. Well, look, back to school and college is causing panic with a rush on quality laptops being reported all over the country. Fran has more details. That's right, Miriam. It's absolute bedlam out there. The market leader in the area, Curry's PC World, are saying their top-of-the-range laptops are going fast, literally disappearing off the shelves. With pupils and students heading back to college, Curry's are advising uh, people to get in there fast. Back to you, Miriam. See you, Hey, where are you going? Cover for me! Hi! Uh, am I too late? Welcome to Curry's PC World. How can I help you? I need 15 of your best laptops. Mm-hmm. Please tell me you have them. I'm sure we can help. So, what class do you uh, teach yourself? Uh, they're for my children. What? Genuinely. Back to school and college in style with Curry's PC World. So there you go. Get yourself down to Curry's PC World and check out the great range of laptops and special laptop promotions available there uh, while there's still time. But listen, um, we here at the Mario Rosenstock podcast, we don't just keep an eye on what's happening in this country. We're a global podcast, or at least I like to think we are. Um, I like to think um, I keep an eye on what's going on around the world. Um, The world at the moment is, you know, at the best of times, a dangerous and unstable place. Uh, But today... We check in to see what's happening over in Russia. Let's go over. Comrades, comrades, Russia is laughing stock of world. Shut up! You want glass of water? No. Russia used to be poster boy for cruelty and oppression. Now, all I hear is Taliban. Taliban this, Taliban that, Taliban the other. We need to up our game. How, President? We need to learn from cruelest, most intolerant, brutal, repressive, merciless group on face of planet. Taliban? No, worse than Taliban. Calling them now. Hello, Nefes, Chief Holland speaking. Greetings from Russia. We are great admirers of you. Work, need to learn methods. Who is this? Not important. Is it true? One word from you and people cower in street. What? Well, that's very kind of you, but on a good day, maybe, yeah. Who elected you, chief? Elected? Da. <laughs> Are you taking the piss, pal? What? I elected myself. Nobody elect. Even I have pretend elect here, but... Well, obviously what? you're doing something wrong over there. What? Have you tried uh, sending out a tweet? Tweet? Yeah, what? driving into town some night, sending out a tweet. Scares the shite out of them. And mess with their heads. Mess with heads. Wow. We do. Let them do something and then for no reason at all just stop them, ban them from doing other things that are exactly the same thing as the first thing. No, explain. No, so I, I allowed them there to have a 40,000 people at a match in a field. field. But then I said, there's no way anybody's having a music festival in a field. But not logical. You can't do the... <laughs> and then I said, hang on. Sure, listen. Why not? Just go ahead. I can't see any problem with it. Just completely <laughs> fuck with them. You are sick in head, Mr. Not here about the electric picnic. Picnic electric? You mean... Yeah, you know, the strokes. Chemical Brothers. 
Strokes? Chemicals? What is happening? The killers, live on stage. I said, sure, go on. <laughs> you are sick puppy. Go, goodbye. <coughs> Not even Russia is ready for these infet savages. Let's try ISIS again. And of course, lots more comedy sketches every week on the Mario Rosenstock podcast. And actually, we're going to be putting out a new comedy special in the next couple of weeks because the first comedy special we did went down really well with you. And... Um, uh, we've done so many comedy sketches at this time, at this uh, up, up to this point now. So actually, if there's any comedy sketch that you'd like to rehear on a podcast, or if there's any kind of sketch that I've been doing and you'd like me to do more of, let me know because I like to be steered by you as well. Um, so do get in touch. You can either get in touch on the um, the rate and review um, option, or you can contact me personally, Mario Rosenstock at gmail dot com. Uh, and I read them all. And thanks a million because some of you are sending in um, quite long ones and from all over the world, Dubai and Australia and New Zealand. And thank you very much for doing that. And I read them all. Thanks for getting in touch. Well, the warm up act has finished. The stage has been set and a hush has descended around the crowd. Tom Dunn, musician, broadcaster, columnist. I love his Irish Examiner columns, by the way, and I would encourage you to read them. He's an exceptional writer. An all-round great guy and great storyteller. He's about to walk on stage. So sit back, turn up the volume on your headphones and enjoy the show. <laughs> so this doesn't have any particular start, Tom. Does it not? Oh, no, no. We've already started. All right. You've probably done five minutes of it already. Good. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about was um, I'm a massive fan of your uh, examiner column. Oh, thanks very much. Yeah, I really am. Yeah, I and it. I knew you could write, but I actually, I actually generally go to find this column every week now because you're a bloody good writer. Oh, I don't, and much. I don't even know how to how to explain what kind of a writer you are, because um, you have your own style of writing. It's very conversational. Yeah. And um, but there's a, there's a wish to it and there's a sparkiness to it and there's an immediacy to your writing. Now, one of the things you have to do with this, you have to get them transferred into a book. Right. Yeah, like O'Brien Press are one of those people. Yeah. Clarkson just that. farms out all his articles and his turns articles them in. Are great. His articles are amazing. Yeah, so for a person who's so hated. Yeah. He's a genius writer. He is. Yeah, he is. Like some people have a genius for this. And he gets his, your attention inside three seconds. His columns are ridiculously yeah. funny. Yeah, ridiculously. They're, they're gold standard. They're gold standard. Yeah, they are. And so he's transferred them into a book. Yeah. And uh, if he can do them, you can do them. Um, and it uh, happens. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so, so I, don't, I don't see why it shouldn't happen. But um, so is there any way that you share with me a couple, two or three of those stories? Sure. For me, Which one? Have you any in mind? Well, I, I'd like you to lead the way if you can. But I, I think the McCartney one is, is, was the one I really liked. Yes. So take us that back there. very, very strange, you mm. know, because I was in the middle of news talk, which, um, you know, can be it's a very roller coaster ride life in, in news talk, you know, um, as you know. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you can never tell on a particular day which way the, the wind is blowing. Yeah. So this was it can a day, be a capricious wind. Can it can yeah. And um, in the midst of all the various things that were going on in my life, I can't remember what particular worries I had at that particular time. I just saw an email saying, "Do you want to go and see Paul McCartney in the cavern?" And it seems like I was after getting an email from 1962 or something. <laughs> it was, you know, is there a hidden camera here? And I read it and then it started to make sense to me that he, he was launching a new album and he was doing bits and pieces to, to draw attention to it. And one was going to be this secret gig in the cavern. So I went over to um, Chris, you know, Chris Doyle. And I just showed, I printed out the email. I, I just I still couldn't believe it. And I just showed it to him. And he said, you'll need to book cover, won't you? Which means you're going to this, right? <laughs> Don't be in any doubt. You're going to this. So um, 
So off, off I rang the company and said, yeah, I'd love to go. And it was two days later. There was no great, you know, um, planning for this. And it was be at the airport for about half six in the morning, something very early. So when I got to the airport, the only other person going to see him was Ryan Tuberty. Better. Point this yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, I'm exploding through my own underpants. <laughs> and, I know this is very strange. And Ryan, of course, he's a massive Beatles fan. He is. He is. And a lovely man. And very famous man. I think the level of his fame. Totally. It's the same as Pat Kenny and yeah. Gay Byrne. It's uh, huge. Uh, yeah. And Dunphy kind of thing. So even at half six in the morning, he's being mobbed. Mobbed. Mm. And oh, just so patient yeah. and polite with He people. reminds me of the Beatles. Yes, he has that. He's like Paul McCartney yeah. of radio. Yeah. <laughs> Time for everyone. Yeah. And uh, we, we go over and uh, arrive. Now, all the time over, the, the record company is saying it mightn't happen. There's, there's loads of different things with this. There might be public safety issues. This is you know, a tiny street in Liverpool. It's not 1963. You can't have Beatlemania anymore. People would close down the city if that happened. So we need to see all the time. We need to see. And the two of us are thinking probably won't happen. But then we arrive in Liverpool and we get to Matthew Street, where, where the venue is. It is like Beatlemania. Now, word has gone out. And what they've done is very fair. There's only 300 seats, or not seats, 300 tickets. There's about 150 for media and 150 for the general public. And all they've done is they've notified a, a university in Liverpool and said, here's 150 tickets. Fans will make their way to you. And the fans are going mad and they make their way and get back. So there is Beatlemania and there are people standing on the roofs of cars and people leaning out of windows. And it's amazing. So into a bar, still thinking this may not happen. Ryan is inundated, uh, even in Liverpool, inundated and stopping for photographs. Because Irish people over there. Yeah, mm. with everybody. So then word comes, it's it's happening. Make our way to... And you're still pres- you're still slightly sceptical though, aren't still, you? Still, yeah, yeah. Because you're thinking, in the article I think you wrote, you're, you're sort of thinking, okay, yeah, now I admit it's happening. But it's some sort of promotional ruse. He'll come yeah. out for 10 minutes. Yeah. He'll do, he might even sing a song. He'll say a few words and yeah. then he'll go. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. And I go in and then Ryan is about seven foot three and I'm three foot six, as you know. So we have to go to different parts of the venue. He could have to stand at the back and I can see everything. I have to make my way to the front. Did he not put you up on his shoulders? He carried me in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Tom, climb up there. He very lovingly carried me into the venue. (laughs) And then... uh, then I made my way to the front and uh, I was standing there. It's, it's, it's like the heat we have today. It's, it's like the black hole of Calcutta. It's Clammy. really, yeah. boy, like, yeah. clothes stuck to you. I'm chatting to various people, wondering how they got to be there. The editor of the enemy. Was Fanning there? No. No. Don't so know why not. Even Fanning. Even Fanning. You were part of an exclusive club. Then. Yep. And uh, the editor of the enemy and... Uh, yeah. Heavyweight this, music people. Yeah. So... Um, then and were they all looking around at each other going with those eyes going is this going to happen and everyone has this how did you get here right you know it's like you're at a wedding there everyone's wondering how, who do you know mm. so then the lights go down and I mean see the, the stage it's, it's a really expensive drum kit and equipment on stage there's good gear up there you know it's definitely a band about to play <laughs> <laughs> maybe even a good one yeah and then he walks on stage and okay. he's, he's as far away from you as the wall of there, 10, Jeez. 12 feet. So then you know this is happening. Yeah, it's happening. Okay. And he, um, he starts to play and the set list is quite brilliant. The first song he ever played to join the Beatles, the song he played to John to impress John. Oh shit, the, the hairs just stood up my arm. Yeah, he opens with, yeah, I know. And uh, what's, the, what's the song? I can't remember. Okay, the yeah, name, yeah. It was, yeah. Before they became the Quarrymen. Yeah. Or, yeah. 
and he's playing that and it's kind of like they're warming up on stage like they're they're just jamming and stuff together and you knew that was the first one did you, you no you, I found you, it later oh you found it later he was just jamming from the original yeah. thing okay yeah and then they went about three like Love Me Do and stuff hits <laughs> I know and I'm wow. just this is good renditions yeah sensational like in voice this is what he really will strike you um, the Beatles could really play and they were really a hard band if you ever get to listen to them in a studio and hear those tapes Ringo really hits the drums they're used to being in rooms where they need to be heard they were they're more like Pearl Jam than we give them credit for okay they're, they're all really able to play and they rock so that's what's happening on stage. It's really powerful stuff. Well, really sorry, just powerful. to interrupt for a moment. Any documentary or book I've ever read about the Beatles, I mean, would always say because of their incredibly long stint in, yeah. in Hamburg that they were it was beaten into them yeah. how to be. They could play any time, I mean, anywhere, yeah, any yeah. place. They used to do gigs at ten in the morning. Yeah, and the drummer could kickstart four to six a. They're just powerful, <laughs> powerful. So then there was the most surreal moment. It was there was a song which had a, a beat in it which reminded me of what is my favourite wing song. It's Letting Go. And in my head, I thought, if I was in the band and I was putting a set together, I'd, I would segue those songs. I'd go from one to the other because the beats are so similar. And then I thought, that can't be about to happen. That literally can't be what's going to happen. And then he started into Letting Go. And I literally, was, that was an out-of-body experience. Mm. I floated away then because I just listened to that album. My sister was dating her then-boyfriend, our husband, back in the 70s in Drimna. And he'd arrive in with Paul McCartney albums under his arm and I'd be glued to them. I didn't realise, but my mother was using me as a kind of contraceptive. <laughs> if I went into the room with them, they, they there'd would, be no letting go. No letting go. So <laughs> No love me do. I followed them everywhere. They took me on holidays or they had to take me on holidays. So I ruined their teenage years. So uh, letting go just went into my head and when they weren't around, I'd be just playing it and playing it and playing it. So to see... That song being played by Paul McCartney, it just, I floated out of my body. I was back in the front room of this house in 51 Donhard Road, Drimna, where I grew up. You know, when you're growing up, you, you learn your address off by heart in case you get lost. And the phone number, yeah. yeah and the par- your parents won't let you out of the house yeah. until you, you're able to say this by road. Yeah. That's exactly where that address was. <laughs> so I just, I just couldn't, at that stage, I couldn't believe this was really happening. Now, was the was this tiny audience completely enchanted? Of oh, course. going absolutely. Were they, everybody looking around lovely. at each other going, what the feck yeah, is happening? Yeah, in, in, tr- in trance. And he's in voice. Yeah, and uh, he's very, very funny and human mm. and personable between songs. And he's the Mozart of the 20th yeah. century. And he's telling stories. Yes, the Mozart. That is going through your mind as well. And you're thinking, I'm so lucky. No, it's Mozart. I've always regarded yeah. it. And I, look, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not one billionth as informed about music as you, but I've always regarded John being a, just being a little darker yeah. uh, as being a kind of a Beethoven to yeah. his Mozart. Yeah. And he was the higher notes, the lighter notes, yeah. the the more melodic almost. Yeah. Yeah. And John was the more, no, no, let's put a little cynicism into this. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you've got a nice little tune there, but like I've got a hard edge to this. Yeah. And when they came together and made hard edge plus beautiful melody, then Beethoven yeah. came together yeah. with Mozart. Listen, that's yeah. just my little No, opinion. I agree 100%. That's it exactly. And um, he was introducing songs and telling stories about songs and telling stories about Ringo joining the band and saying when Ringo joined, we were really chuffed because he, he was said when we were in Liverpool, Everyone looked at Ringo. Ringo was the drummer. Mm. And the idea of Ringo joining our little band. It was quite a, a, a kudos, yeah. It was unbelievable. Um, so two hours he played for. Oh, God. Two hours. And as it went on, I was, I was wet, wet 
with sweat. Absolutely. Clothes soaked me. And I, I did have the heart thing was in my mind. Yeah, 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 <laughs> I, could, yeah, yeah. I wasn't aware of how bad it was at the time. Yeah. But I was having surgery five months after that. Yeah, it, was, yeah. it was coming. Yeah. And it was on my mind. And I was thinking, this heat isn't good, Tom. This heat isn't good. And then I'm thinking, am I perspiring more than other people? Because mm. am I struggling more than other people? Yeah. Um, One of the greatest gigs you've ever witnessed in your life, easily, presumably. Uh, yeah, by a country man. I don't know if you told this story, or maybe it was just somebody on the radio, um, but they went, because they saw McCartney in um, the RDS. Yeah. I don't know if you told this story. Might have been me. Uh, Yesterday? Um, no, no, not me. So basically, it's the end of the gig. And you're just talking about people. The person, the person on the radio said, some people don't even deserve to be at gigs. Yeah. They don't deserve to be there. They don't deserve their ticket. Yeah. They've paid, I've paid 78 euro. Yeah, you still don't deserve to be there. Why? Because Paul McCartney finished playing in the RDS and just before he said goodbye and charmed everybody, he said just one more song and he began to pick the chords of yesterday. And the guy in front of this other guy who said, he was there like, ah, oh, jeez, I have to get out of here. So, uh, you know, the, the taxi's outside and or whatever, or his pint or something. Yeah. And he was just talking during the opening chords of yeah. the most recorded song yeah. of the 20th century. Yeah. <laughs> and you just like, you don't deserve your tickets. No, you don't. As your man is picking out yesterday. I, I was at that already ask gig. Scrambled eggs. To, He's picking out scrambled yeah. eggs. I went to it with my wife and my, my uh, best friend, Derek, and the two of them were giddy. And they wanted to go to the bar and get a few drinks in. And I said, here's the deal. When he walks on stage, you two are in your seats watching Paul McCartney. And they're like school children. <laughs> Sit down. Wait for him to go on stage. Get drinks later. You know? So um, he went on and then about seven songs in, he did a song for George and there was footage of George. He did something. Oh, I looked over and the two of them are crying. Audrey and Derek Aww. are crying Aww. beside me. And I'm thinking, now aren't you glad I made you sit down? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny, actually, because we could talk about the Beatles all day, yeah, but something, something, I mean, some of George Harrison's contributions to the Beatles, I mean, it's, it's, it's been argued once or twice by some people that they are the greatest Beatles songs ever written. They are that amongst were, the, them. The, the greatest Beatles songs ever written. We're not yeah. It's not, weren't even written by John and Paul. Yeah. You know, he um, made that last time. Didn't album. he do While My Guitar Gently Weeps? Yeah, and something. And I think here While comes My Guitar. Yeah, well, Here Comes the Sun. But yeah. While My Guitar Gently Weeps still oh, resonates gorgeous. something yeah, with me. Yeah. There's something different yeah. about it. Yeah. Something very. He made the, the Abbey Road album, I think it's probably my favourite Beatles album. And there's no question his contributions to it are what makes it such an absolutely rounded, beautiful piece of yeah. work. What a song. Oh, okay, Tom, yeah. that's a great story. Where, uh, tell us another story um, from your, from your um, columns. Will, 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 I, will, will I. Is this you a good story? You remind me, because yeah. I find eaten bread is fast forgotten. Yeah, well, this column. It, it, red bread is quite forgotten as yeah. well. So I read your article and then I've forgotten it 20 well, minutes I write later. It and then I forget it. <laughs> <laughs> Was there a good story about werewolves in London? Um, Warren Zevon? Warren Zevon. Yeah, is that a good story? There's so many Warren Zevon stories. Tell me the best one. Well, I think the, the one, the recurring theme about Warren is that he wasn't a nice man. And. He really wasn't. Now, he's a very talented man and the world that he passed through is just phenomenal. He was in L.A. at the beginning of all that Geffen Records, Eagles, kind of Linda Ronstadt, Chris, uh, uh, Joni Mitchell, all that, that amazing time in L.A. 
he was there as well and a part of it. And then afterwards, as he started, when he went to write Werewolves of London, that's actually Fleetwood Mac playing on Werewolves of London. You know, it, the people he, he mingled with is mm. just off the clock. But he used to use bands to go on the road with and he used R.E.M. back in um, late 80s. I think he went on the road with them. And it was like, it was really brilliant and the songs they did was great. But then lo and behold, just when the something happens, ship was badly held beneath the waterline. Um, <laughs> He uh, he approached us to, to use us with the same agent in America, mm. and, and the, our agent said, "I know this rocking Irish band," and he took a listen to our album and said, "Yeah, they'd be brilliant." So it was an odd experience because um, suddenly we were we supported him, but then we were also his band. So on the first night we went on in New Jersey and died a death, and then the exact same band went on with a different singer and brought the house down. Very difficult to be the singer in that situation mm. and see your band perform and suddenly being loved. So that wasn't easy. But also, the only get at a jail card here was nobody else in our band could sing. And he lives by backing vocals. A lot of his backing vocals written by the Eagles and the Beach Boys. So he has sensational backing vocals. Yeah. So after the first night, when I felt like the loneliest man in the world, I said, um, I could do backing vocals for you, Warren, you know. He said, that'd be brilliant, Tom. I didn't want to ask you. So, <coughs> excuse me. Um, I was brought into the fold and he has sensational songs with, with backing vocals. And one of the great ones is Detox Mansion, which he wrote when he got sober. Um, it's a really great getting straight song, you know, and um, one of his biggest hits. So he wrote out the lyrics. For me. I'll never forget that. I was sitting beside him and he said, oh, you know, you need to sing the whole thing. He's the most fantastic voice. Yeah. But he did kind of like a, a Western shooter type voice. If he said to pass the salt, everyone in the room would pass. It's like sounds like know. Chris Christopherson mixed with Tom Waits or something. Pass the salt. Yes. There you go. There you go. There you go. So, uh, you know, you need to sing the exact same vocal as me on this one, Tom. You know, so he wrote out all the lyrics for me. I just thought I'd have them at home. Still amazing. So he loved this and um, took a shine to me then. And I was wearing a Ryan Giggs T-shirt because Ryan was very big at the time. And he would introduce me <laughs> each night as Ryan Giggs. And on, <laughs> and on, <laughs> On backing vocals are very talented Ryan Giggs. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, we were doing, I think it was about oh, 60 gigs and we we're doing two, two gigs a night. So we we're doing 120 gigs yeah. around America. And it's a phenomenal in, in, uh, introduction to America. So he was very, very intelligent very ravaged by intelligence is how he would describe it himself and he described America as this big toilet bowl and he said civilization is clinging to the edges you know, New York LA these places are sophisticated you know the minute you go away from the edges you're in the shithole you're in the shit Tom you know, and he had all these great ways rim of a bowl yeah mm. and he was true it was true like mm. in New York he these lovely sophisticated audiences but then you went into the south a strange thing a lot of his audience were rednecks he hated rednecks and he had songs about rednecks, but they didn't get them. They didn't get the wit. He, they didn't get that he was setting them up and yeah. taking the piss. Yeah. They just thought he, he meant all these things. Send lawyers guns and money. Yeah, you tell them. You yeah, tell yeah. them, you know. All these songs about vets from Hanoi and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah. You know? They hear the words vets from Hanoi. Yeah. And he hated them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if they asked for a song during the set, you know, he particularly hated this. Right. So... He felt if Warren Zevon is in town, you can take it as read 
that you're going to hear Werewolves of London. Right, so if you're in the front and you go, Warren, could you do werewolves? That means he's going to drop werewolves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he'd say it. Well, shit eyes, not anymore. Shit eyes. Yeah. He'd call people shit eyes. Yeah. And third generation turd handlers. That okay. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Which when you think about it is a very withering criticism. That's, you know, your, your great grandfather, your grandfather and your father were all shit, shit handlers. Yeah. You've never at any stage managed to go beyond that. Yeah. Tough, tough shit. So that was kind of crazy. And then the craziness got worse and worse. And he, I oh, hated the drivers. So during the course of the tour, we went through about four or five drivers because he just couldn't fire them quickly enough. And you never knew how a driver was going to insult or annoy Warren. Um, and the bus had gone on fire once. He tried to get Ray to go back on the bus to get his bag of T-shirts. I thought, Ray, would you get my T-shirts? Ray, the bus is on fire. You know, he wants Ray to step into a burning bus to get a bag of grey T-shirts. <laughs> so, Ray, don't get on the bus. So, if all this developing and then a new driver arrived, he drove overnight to get to us. And he didn't check in with Warren. That was where he made his mistake. So, we went to drive after the gig, 2 a.m. in the morning. We had to drive to the next venue. He goes down the bus introducing himself to everyone. And when he gets to Warren, Warren says, I'm your boss and you're fired. We're going, it's 2 a.m., Warren. You can't be firing him now. So this escalates and escalates and escalates. And we started to create tension between us. He went, he called me a, a, a journalist at one point. He thought I was, because I, I kept a diary. It's a crazy guy. And then, then he listened to one of our songs and he says, a poet guy, eh? <laughs> I liked that. Uh, but on the very last day of the tour, um, we were followed by this little man in a little car. Is your remind, do you know who you reminded me of now? That he, that he's, he reminds me of Buffalo Bill in Hannibal Lecter. Yes. And he just keeps you down a hole in a well and goes, yeah. hey, poor guy, you're yeah. yeah, if he could have got away with that, he would have. Yeah. So the very last day, we drive out to a car park in New Jersey and we're emptying all the stuff off the bus. And you've been on a bus for three months, so you've an awful lot of rubbish and books and clothes and things to get off it. And the little man in the little car is watching us from afar. And finally, he works up the courage to, to come up to us and he gets out of his car and he's got this thing under his arm and he walks up to us and he says, I, I, I made this to commemorate your tour. And he's got a little plaque saying, Warren's Yvonne, American Tour in 1995. Warren takes it off him and just fucks it over his shoulder into the river. That's it. Doesn't say a single word. Just and little guy. <laughs> frisbee. Like a frisbee. <laughs> little guy just kind of nods. I, I, I accept this. Definitely. You know? Yeah, walks back to his car and drives away. Mm. And it was just, it was so uh, awful and unnecessary and so warrenty. Memories of America, Tom, and yeah. memories of something happens. Yeah. Okay, so you two, if you two. If we say that you two made it, mm-hmm. I think it's safe to say they did. Mm-hmm. And let's say making it was um, making it was 100 on a scale of 100 yeah. out of 100. Uh, where was something happens in the term in, in the scale of nearly making it? Did you get over in a percentage? Could you put a number on? No, it? I'd say it could be as low as about 22. Oh, are you serious? Yeah. Because I don't, I didn't know that. I didn't. I, I yeah. always thought that you were on the crest of a wave. That there yeah, was we were, that you were close to something. We were, but Warren's um, analogy of the toilet bowl was very true for us as well. So we got to America uh, for the God's Glue tour, and the first two weeks were all on the East Coast, and that was New York and Philadelphia, and Boston and Chicago, and all. They were all sold out, all sold out. 
And I remember going on in Chicago in particular, the venue held 2,000 people. 2,000? Yeah. So you were selling out 2,000 people. Yeah. That's big. It is big, yeah. yeah. No, that was the biggest. Yeah. Uh, because a song called Devil and Miss Jones had gone off on yeah. radio. But for a band that's just come to America, that's very big. Yeah, it was. It was phenomenal. And um, what was really heady about it was that I thought that record was nearly all singles. And yeah. for them to pick Devil and Miss Jones and for it to be a hit on radio in Chicago was incredible and I was kind of on stage thinking well we have Parachute we have Hello Hello we have Room 29 we have Devil and Miss Jones they're all singles Kill the Roses all singles this could go very well and then we arrived at Boston and in Boston they were sending us over covers of the uh, the Evening Press uh, the Evening Press headline was Irish band sells out Boston so it really looked like there was this big wave of success coming our way and it was quite heady it was that kind of thinking about how is this going to change my life and how am I going to cope with this it, you know it's coping with success is, is a rarity we're, we're all more used to coping with struggle or you know oh, that's, well that's an interesting concept I mean yeah. even you two have failed more than they succeeded yeah. Yeah, so absolutely. we're all used to failure yeah. you know it's, you two have failed 60-70% of the yeah. time it's the 30% of the time that they succeeded that they yeah. succeeded big yeah. but yes failure we're all yeah. used to we were big in Ireland at this point but yeah. we'd been big in Ireland for about six months but the being big in Ireland at that time but being big in Ireland at that time was a big deal because yeah, anybody but, people were really focusing on Ireland yeah but the previous five years, we've been playing to tiny crowds mm. all over Ireland, tiny crowds. So this it was, it was all quite unique. But I was thinking, God, if this translates into America, where do we stand? Yeah. And then we finished that little bit of the tour and we started to move inland, the, the classic Warren inland. And we arrived at a little kind of college. I remember we played this five girls in a five-a-side. They hockeyed us. <laughs> I remember thinking that we were European, Irish, played five-a-side growing up. All, we'll, we'll show them. And they were just these super fit Americans. <laughs> we hadn't a chance against them. So that was sobering. But then the gig was sobering too. It was a much smaller crowd. And that was the last crowd we saw until we arrived in L.A. And we arrived in L.A. about five weeks later. We played Kansas to about five people. Mm. And I remember when we got off stage, we went drinking in the bar with the five people and another group came in and one of them was a girl. She went on stage and started taking her clothes off and within minutes, the whole venue was full. And we were thinking, she's just taking her clothes off and the place is full. We, we flew here from Ireland and her in a tour bus outside. This is costing hundreds of thousands yeah. and nobody bothered coming to see us. Yeah. So America, LA sold out, but everyone was kind of saying to us like, it's not going to be sold out again after this. And then you come through the bottom of America, through Dallas and, and then up through South Carolina, North Carolina. You don't see you don't see an audience again. And that is soul destroying. And then you finally do your last gig in New York to round the whole thing off. That's three months later. And the light's gone out in your eyes a little bit hmm. at that point. So You're tired. Yeah, you are tired. You don't really want to see the guys. You're dispirited. Yep. And we were off to tour of Australia. We'd been on the road from March and this was the end of December and we didn't want to go to Australia. Nobody had it in them. We'd also had a three-week tour of Ireland coming up in January. Mm. So, um, yeah, we just we were dispirited at that point and uh, we opted to try and go in and start working on the next album, but uh, we'd, lost, we'd lost our way of it, mm. no question. The a bit of the spark had gone out of the whole thing. It just seemed to be a bit of a drudge. Any you know? bittersweet memories towards the end? Any moments that you can remember that you went, yeah, that that image lasts in my head of... 
Well, there was millions. Um, I mean, do you want good ones or bad ones? <laughs> I want bad ones that are funny ones. Well, there are the funny ones. There always seems to be a twist. We went to Staten Island, um, again, about 12 people, and they were all, for whatever reason, they decided to dance lying down on the floor. Right, so you can imagine you're on the stage and on the floor just dancing crazily yeah. are the audience. Lying on the floor. Lying on the floor, yeah. And they love it. They love it. But then, about uh, a year later, I went to go through customs going back on tour again in America. And I was, you know, the, the, the queue is a mile long. It's immigration. You know, it's in Dublin. And I'm at the very end of the queue. And the immigration officer in this uniform, that stern look the Americans do, you know. He looks down the queue and just goes, you know, skip the queue, come this way. So I go up, Staten Island, man. Amazing. He was one of the Staten Island. <laughs> <laughs> what a fluke. Yes. And he remained there. Matt was his name. I got to know him really well. Oh, good. Yeah. Never queued for immigration again, going yeah. to America. You would all those things. And we'd, we'd great crack and um, we get on very well. We're, we're a band. We like each other's company. Um, and that never went away. So that was important. And we had a great network around us in America. So we did gigs in CBGBs. And I was very aware of where we were. When we were on stage at CBGBs, you're thinking, Talking Heads, Ramones, Blondie. It's brilliant to be part of that. Brilliant. Yeah. This podcast is proudly supported by our friends in Curry's PC World. Back to the chat. Over the years, you've probably thought about this, right? So people compare you to U2 in a way yeah. because U2 went to America around the same time and they just, just broke America. Mm. And everybody knew that something happens. We're a fine band, exactly. Yeah. Singles galore on that album. Um, if, can, you, can you answer this question uh, of how do you think, what, how does a band make it? Now, obviously, there's a few, there's a few truisms involved. Yeah. There. But have you thought about, obviously, yeah. you've thought about that over the years. Has, yeah. you, has it changed how you think? How does a band make it? So, for example, I'll give you, I'm not in a band, yeah. but I'll give you a theory. Yeah. Uh, so I believe that a lot in life is to do with luck. Yeah. Right? Now, I believe that you have to be supremely talented, yeah. ready, able. There's probably in the right time in the right place. But I believe a lot of it is luck. But I don't know if that's all of it. Mm. And I'm wondering, you know, how did you two make it in America? Yeah, I think they had uh, in, an incredible um, outer vision of what they were up to. Now, they were world class also. Let, let's never lose sight of that. Mm. If you listen to those early tracks, they're world class from the world go. And they're producing track after track that is world class. From 11 o'clock TikTok, even the ones that didn't make it, they're quite songs, fire and stuff like that. But when every time they needed the goods, they came up with the goods. Around them, I think they had a particularly brilliant support network. I think McGuinness is brilliant. I think the record company were brilliant. They surrounded themselves with really great talent. And they just they, they themselves have a very um, inquisitive and challenging mental outlook towards things. I remember there were bands in Ireland who brought in uh, psychotherapists to try and get themselves over humps. I remember one particular band, they were all asked to say, in the room, where do you see yourself in this room? And the singer said, outside the door. (laughs) Right, here we go. (laughs) So I think you need that kind of real intelligence. And I think there's times when it's all coming at you too fast and you don't really have that. Well, I don't think we did. I think we were running into problems with Virgin that were outside our control. Our A&R man left. He was integral to us. Ronnie Kerr was integral to Something Happens. He was one of the few people who could say, that song is good and that song isn't good, who we believed. And then he was replaced by his boss, 
who liked everything we did. That's no this good. This wasn't good. This wasn't good. And I think at a point where someone needed to say, back off with these songs, take a break. You're not used to spending 10 months on the road. You know, decompress, go away. We didn't do any of that. So I think, and then mistakes start to become cumulative. You find yourself in a studio at a producer you're not mad about with songs you don't think are that good. And the wheels are coming off. Mm. That's, yeah, and that's how it happens. I think every band will tell you similar stories that there are so many different things you need to control and have in your favour that to control all of them and get them right is, is tough. It's tough. Are there bands out there who we've never heard of who are fucking brilliant? Yeah. That was now, I mean really brilliant. And I don't mean one good song. Yeah, no, there's, there's lots of them. Are there? Yeah, lots of them. So, like, to put it into layman's language, are there bands out there who could have become U2 or R.E.M. Yeah, that totally. we've never heard of? Yeah, totally. Because do you know there are no Roger Federer's out there who could have been a Roger Federer? Yeah. You know that? This Man. is a... There aren't. There are no people... Like, for example... See, when you go into this, an adult environment. Which is what I'm trying to... I'm trying to just draw the... the, 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 the I'm trying to draw the comparison <coughs> between... Basically, art and, yeah. for example, in this case, sport or yeah. engineering or something. Yeah. That art is so subjective and lucky yeah. and value judgment based. Yeah. And I think this and who, what important person thinks this is good? Yeah. What, lad, what chin stroker thinks this fella yeah. is good? Whereas chin strokers don't matter with Roger Federer. Roger no. Federer, at one yeah. point, was the greatest tennis player on earth. Yeah. Now, that means nobody on earth could beat Roger Federer. Mm. There was no fella in Dundrum who, no. you should have seen him play. Yeah. Yeah, he, exactly. he just wasn't lucky enough. No, no, yeah. no. That's not yeah. the way it goes. But with music, it's different. Yeah, it is. There are bands out there. Yeah. Who? Um, our manager, Connor, said to me at the time, um, there are bands out there that are better than you who haven't made it. And there are bands out there that are worse than you who have made uh, it. Totally. Um, you have to stand back at that. There's a very famous band called Big Star. Uh, have you ever heard of Big no. Star? See, this is it. Big Star are an amazing band. They had two albums in the early 70s, which every band worth its salt, from us to R.E.M. to Teenage Fan Club, adore and regard as the pinnacle of Beatles-influenced harmony, melody-heavy rock. They are two of the greatest albums of all time. They didn't make it. And once you look at Big Star with Alex Chilton of them and you think they didn't make it you have to come back and go there's an awful lot of randomness at work yes, here there, it, really there is. is there is and they, they, they inspired another band called The Replacements now when we were when we were starting to try and make inroads in America the band that we all looked up to the band that we most circled amongst ourselves is the band we'd like to be like were The Replacements we reckoned uh, Westerberg their songwriter was genius and most of the informed music press thought he was the next Springsteen okay, so now you wouldn't know that unless you're in America and on the road mm. that's part of the reason that I went into radio you know that mm. because when I came back here The Replacements weren't played mm. they weren't rated mm. and I thought that, that's crazy and since then, the replacements are, they play the roundhouse now when they get back together. And Paul Westberg's written songs for Glenn Campbell. He's a brilliant songwriter. Uh, so you see them, and you, I look at their works and I despair. I think I'll never write a song like Hanging Party or any of theirs. Mm. They're sensational songs. Yeah, but it just, it just emphasises the randomness. Yeah, total randomness. Of the whole and, thing. And music is just full of that. And reason bands 
don't and why they fall apart. Because what I've done, what I've done in my life since then in music, I've been in a position where I can actually turn to Joe Strummer and say, Joe, what happened to Clash? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's the, that's, the wa- that's the waiter in the casino in Las Vegas going, George, where did it all go wrong? To George Best. I, I, you know, I wouldn't ask him as, as boldly as that. But I did get stuck in a room with him. Um, after the Heineken Green Energy gig in Dublin, May Bank Holiday Weekend, many years ago. And the interview was long over. We had done it for a TV show. And now we were just sitting having a beer. And then he just he started opening up. And he said, you know, the Clash. We, we, and he described the Clash's career. And he said, we never got a break. We were just album tour, album tour, album tour. And at the end of the Santa Nista one, we just didn't ever want to see each other again. Yeah. And we broke up. If we had just, if somebody somewhere had just said, would you not take three months off? We would have done another mm. album, you know, and to see that, it's, there's, there's so much randomness and people have a kind of romantic view of the whole thing and chancers can get involved. And I mean, if we talked about Paul McCartney, the Alan Klein thing in the Beatles is sensational. This awful man coming in from America and being chosen by three of the Beatles to manage them. But he's just he's just ripped off the Rolling Stones. Yes. The Rolling Stones rip off is sensational, yeah. and and it's public knowledge. So yeah. how are the Beatles getting yeah. into bed with Alan Klein? Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I don't know if you know the story of the Stones, but they sign a deal. Andrew Lou Goldman signs a deal with Klein, and then they get their first royalty statement, and um, Andrew can't understand it, and he looks at Alan Klein. And he says, "I fucked you. Did you not realise? <laughs> Welcome to America." <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Oh God! Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go into the next chapter now. One of the scariest moments in my life was in Donnybrook Church when I had to get up and I had to do a eulogy for Tony Fenton. Mm. And I opened my mouth and I went. There was two thousand people in front of me in the church, and I was very sad. I just finished crying because I was holding onto Leah Murphy's hand, and I just finished crying when I saw his coffin coming up. And I didn't realize I'd cry because I don't really cry. Hmm. I'm, I'm one of those people who I think I, I try to macho it out. I kind of I try to pretend I try to have, you know, to cover my feelings. And uh, uh, but I d- it just it was involuntary, like all these things tend hmm. to be when they happen. There was I didn't realize it was going to happen. I squeezed her hands and started crying. And then I had to get up and speak. And so I said, Tony Fenton. And just as I said, Tony Fenton, the proverbial pin dropped because Four men came walking up the aisle. You too. <laughs> Larry, Adam, uh, uh, The Edge, and then Bono. And they sat in front of me. And they gave me that look as if to say, and you were saying? <laughs> <laughs> and I said something like, sorry, ladies and gentlemen, we've just been joined by the biggest band in the world. Only Tony Fenton could organize that. <laughs> and broke the ice. Everybody yeah. laughed. Yeah. And I, luckily, I saved my own ass from yeah. a performer's point of view, not yeah. from a Tony point of view or anything. Yeah. And, uh, and then later in the, in, the, in the thing, Bono and the guys played. And it was great for Tony. Oh, yeah, and, then, and then Paul Harrington did yeah. an absolutely sensational version of Golden Slumbers yeah. going into yeah. that, you know, that, thri- that tri- three songs. That, yeah. That, that, I forget the other ones. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Carry it away. Yeah, carry it away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. Stunning. But anyway, it brings me back because Tony was a very much a mutual friend of ours. Oh, and I love absolutely. that story you tell about in the hospital. Go on. It's one of the greatest stories of all time. It really is. Um, we moved into our house uh, in... Dunleary and I was standing in for Ray Darcy at the time 
Uh, all of our belongings had arrived in the house and we had, uh, I think, a one-year-old child at the time. And it was very stressful. All the things that she needed urgently had gone into the wrong place in the van and we, we couldn't, the truck, we couldn't find it. And we were having to call around to the new neighbours and borrow things to make food for her. It was really stressful. And then the alarm kept going off, but we couldn't switch it off because they hadn't given us the alarm code. Or the, the people we rang, the, the service provider was saying, you're not the registered donor of that house. And, and this was really getting to us. And then I was getting up at probably half six to go into Ray's show. So I did two nights of this. And then suddenly on the second night, around midnight, um, I started to shake in bed and then I felt my, my jaw starting to kind of lock slightly. And I, I got a bit worried and I elbowed Audrey and she immediately panicked and called an ambulance. Um, so as the ambulance arrived, I threw her my phone and said, call Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy was our boss at the time because I didn't think I'd be doing the right Darcy show the next day. I thought that was <laughs> going to be quite clear, you know. But obviously she rang the wrong number on the phone. So I arrived in, in the ambulance at the hospital and the doors of the ambulance opened and there's Tony Fenton. <laughs> And my initial reaction was, that's an incredible bit of coincidence. Tony and I are sick on the same night. Mm. So I said, Tony, it's incredible. We're both here at the hospital. And he said, your lady called me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. So in I go. And Tony is is looking after me. He's with me. You know, and I'm I'm waiting kind of of in a trolley, but off to one side. And uh, then he's outside. The, the curtain giving my uh, you know details to the nurse and she's saying and your friend's profession and he says uh, DJ no wait top DJ <laughs> <laughs> so I'm laughing on your this. then he comes in and uh, my heartbeat is about 120 and it's up on the monitor but it's coming down you know he's Tom try and get your heartbeat down to 100 to 102 <laughs> <laughs> yes. Did he say it with a straight face? Yes. That was so, a joke with a straight face. Yep. Yeah. So Brilliant. I do it. I, I start taking deep breaths, drinking some water, looking at the monitor. You know, you see it going 108, 107. And finally it goes to 102. The two of us go, yes! <laughs> my, my heartbeat shoots up, sets off all the alarms. <laughs> the nurses run, what's happening? What's happening? How do you tell them? How do you tell them? Exactly. Yeah. That was a very special night. Uh, I had a lot of special nights with Tony. He was really, uh, what would you say about him? Every, every time we were doing anything, Audrey would say, is there any chance Tony might come? She'd always look, would you not put a call into Tony? Because everything he came to, he just he improved out of all recognition. He was just um, fun, uh, entertaining. And uh, it just the party took off. I don't know. We had these things in Rassam. Rassam was just opening. And they used to do these tasting nights and they'd say, like, bring your friends, Tom. So I'd always bring Tony. And Tony would just be there saying, right, chance for a few more of the Goldie Horns. Yeah. <laughs> the Goldies. He was great. Great. An awful loss. Yeah. At one stage, in his, at his peak, he was the barometer of a night. He was. There wasn't really nights around our sort of circle if Tony wasn't there. No. They go, yeah, we had a night. It was grand. Yeah. Was Tony there? Nah. Move on. Yeah. And <laughs> it's funny how so many things that he said remain in our lingo to yeah. this day. But he had a great voice. And so when he said them, you always remember them. Yeah. They were imprinted on you. But um, do you know what? I know Tuberty loves the word kindness too much in my view. But he was the epitome he of was. kindness. Tony was. And Little moments. I remember going for 
dinner with him. He didn't like to bitch about it. He didn't like... Never heard him bitching about anything. I did once or twice, yeah. but only... Yeah, but only in a... Only in a last resort kind of... And it wasn't a big bitch. He wouldn't really... He was kind to people behind yeah. their back. He was kind to people. He A restaurant once, uh, the wine... Before you two gone for dinner with him in a Thai restaurant and the, the uh, wine list arrives and he just hands it straight back and says, Premier Crew... It's a Premier Crew kind of day. <laughs> and then after that gig, we went to Spy, that little nightclub, and he goes to the bar and says, five drinks, please. What kind of drinks? Blue ones, please. Yeah. <laughs> five minutes later, we're all sitting at these big blue drinks. No one knows what's in them, but... Absolutely, Let's blue ones. Them. Another one he'd do is, obviously, you remember this one, he'd go, we'd go, we'd be, the two of us, we'd often go out just the two of us. Yeah. Wingman with wingman. Yes. We were both each other's wingman. <laughs> neither was flying the plane. That was the way, dude, neither was there flying. We're both wingmen. And we're out on our own. And uh, we would just go, the, go, the, the um, we, we would just fall into this routine. It was like Dumb and Dumber, really, yes. in a way. Forget about John and Paul. It was more Dumb and Dumber. Kind of cute, kind of friendly, dumb and dumber. Yeah. We're innocent. People would know we would never harm them. Yes. And we just go to the bar and uh, a young, let's say, waitress sort of maybe kind of think her first day in the job, a bit nervous. What can I get you? A surprise. <laughs> <laughs> right. She's not having any of that. She looks at me and I go, a surprise. And you're just there. She's there. What a nightmare first night. Yes. Two lads, two lads in their 40s and 50s. I was in my 40s going, give us a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. So listen, we could talk about Tony yeah, forever. But actually, guy. Tom, I've really enjoyed uh, this uh, thing. But there's been a few people on the phone as well. They've been, right. They're listening. Great. They're listening to it. I think Jay Fanning is on the phone. Oh, great. You say hi to him. Hi, Dave. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hi, Tom. Tom, there's only room for one music mogul, uh, journalist, sort of mellow, uh, honeyed-voiced uh, music mogul in this in this town. I just want to ask you a question, Tom, to see if your music uh, music, music, music um, knowledge is up to scratch. Who, what, in 1979, what seminal David Bowie album did he release in 1979? 79 would have been larger, would it? Ah, fuck. Okay, good, <laughs> good, 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 good. Well, 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 well. Okay, Roy Keane's online, too. Is he? Oh, great, Roy. Great fan, Roy. How's it going? Good. <laughs> Never heard such cribbing on my life Going on about not breaking America Fellas in Staten Island Dancing on the floor And giving out Giving out Three months is all you were Three months Is that all you gave it? The name of your band is called Something Happens Fuck all happened <laughs> Fuck all happened Why didn't it happen? You didn't offer to go to Australia at the end And you didn't even do it You're too tired There was no balls There was <laughs> No you're blaming You're blaming the drummer yes, again Yes You're blaming the kit Yeah yeah, you're blaming, it was, it was blaming the facilities. Prepare to fail. No, I can't stand anybody who blames the facilities. Yeah, we you, we were prepared to fail, and we did. You were sent home from America, weren't we? We were actually. <laughs> <laughs> no how it feels at the end of the day. You know, even your songs, parachute. Yes, you were already thinking about getting out. Absolutely, you had no commitment at no, all. No. The, pl- the, 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 the song no. should have been fly the plane all the way there. No, my first thing was who gets the parachute. Exactly. Yeah. you were there to take a fucking parachute and jump. That was me. Talk about lack of commitment to the forced cause. Out. At the end of the day, forced out. Jesus Christ. Good luck. I'm out of here. You're worse than Phil Neville. That's it. Okay. Uh, well done. That's great, Roy. Roy. Thanks, Roy. Roy. Yeah, the Roy always yeah, gets Roy, involved. Always, always, um, always lovely to hear from you, Roy. Did Dr. Bill, Dr. Bill, yeah. did Dr. Bill have a question? Well, Dr. Bill, we believe he's on the phone. Yeah. Um, we're just wondering if, uh, do you know Dr. Bill? I do, I've you, met him. You met him, Dr. Yeah. Bill, because I think um, you had a lot to do with him did, a few years yeah, ago. We were very close. Dr. Bill, does Dr. Bill, how are you, Dr. Bill? Do you have anything to say to Tom Dunn? I must say, I've always been a great fan of yours, Tom. I think, you know, you and I share a lot in common. 
working class lads doing well in the world. And, you know, not different from you as well in the old leg department, may I say. But I think the fact now, Tom, that you have the bionic heart, that is just freaking amazing, Tom. You have the edge on me now. A pig's heart. A pig's mickey. Which I believe you also are. Thanks, Dr. Bill. That's wonderful. Really wonderful. It was great. I haven't heard him in years. Ah, he's great. Yeah, he's, he's lying low at the moment. He is lying low. Things, yeah. things have been hard as well. They've been hard. There's rumours that he, he is actually uh, in a, a kind of crypt somewhere yeah. and he can only be restored by pouring a bottle of TK Red Lemonade over him. I'll never forget the episode on Ian Dempsey's breakfast show. I think it was featured on, on Gift Grub where he had the penis augmentation. Ah, yes. The augment- he didn't have an augmentation. Oh, he did not. He didn't need one. If you don't mind, it was actually a reduction. Oh, sorry, Bill, it was a reduction. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, they were able to make five more full-sized ones as the bits they cut off me. Excellent. We leave it there, Dr. Bill. Leave it there, Dr. Bill. Um, finally, Tom... Oh, I still uh, have a little bit left if you're short yourself. No, I'm grand, Dr. Bill. Thanks a lot, Dr. Bill Cullen. Thank you very much and good luck. <laughs> Listen, uh, Tom, um, we had a... I ask all my guests, would they like to be... Uh, would they like to be celebrated by Christy Moore? Would they like to be interrogated by Miriam O'Callaghan or eviscerated by Roy Keane? Well, you've kind of been eviscerated by Roy yes, Keane. I have. So, yeah. Yes, I have. Yes, there's an added bonus. Okay. So, did you make a choice? I did. I'd like to be. Uh, I'd like Christy to sing to me, please. Oh, great, Christy! So, hopefully, we have Christy on the line. How are you, Christy? How are you doing? How are you doing, Mario? How are you doing, Tom? I'm down here in Newbridge. And I'm having a great old time listening to you. Tom, are you well in yourself? Very well, Christy. Thanks. You're sounding great with the old ticker, the new ticker, or the new um, Pig's Mickey or whatever it's called. And I wrote, I wrote, I wrote a little, um, I wrote a little ballad for you, Tom, if you don't mind. Would you like to hear it? I'd love that. Okay. I'll get stuck in here. <laughs> with the bow around beside me. He's a multifaceted media man with a voice of liquid honey. A superb, a superb, um... Musician who writes great songs, very different to Donor Lunny. He's a balladeer of renown, he's small and kind of cute. He built an entire career singing about a parachute. <laughs> Take a parachute and jump, said something happens, band leader. I know what you're thinking, I haven't a feckin' clue what that means either. <laughs> so up the yard, Dave Fannin, this fella has your measure. He's the original Paisley shirted music expert slash national treasure. Up the yard, Tom. Woo! <laughs> ah, lovely, lovely, lovely. Thanks lovely. very much. Thanks, Chris. You're welcome, Tom. You're welcome. Thank More you. power to your elbow and your heart. Oh, that's great. The great Christie. Great. Isn't that brilliant? Beautiful. You can put yes. that, oh, it's the equivalent. You put that up on your wall almost. Absolutely. I play that to the children. The power on and Christie. Yeah, to, to be in his brain somewhere. Means the world. Absolutely fantastic. Um, listen, our work here is done, Tom. Great stuff. And you were absolutely fantastic. Great. Tom, thanks a million. Mario, thank you. Boy, that was really great. Thanks. And I hope you enjoyed that chat with Tom. I certainly did. Thanks for listening. Any thoughts or comments, mail me, as I said earlier, on mariorosenstock at gmail.com. Um, especially if, you're, uh, if there's any um, ideas on sketches that you'd like to hear more of or, or anything you'd like to make me aware of. Also, make sure to check out the Duran Garrahi episode from a few weeks ago that I um, promoted at the top of the episode. Thanks, of course, as always, to Curry's PC World for their ongoing support. And thanks to you, especially, for tuning in. I'll be back here, same time, same place, next Thursday with a new edition of this podcast. Keep listening and hope life is good with you. Take care.